0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Neda Tuluïse was only three years old when her father, Faromars, a leftist revolutionary, was executed by the Iranian regime in January of 1983. Neda was just 30 when she lost her mother to cancer, the other half of her Iranian revolutionary bloodline. In the wake of her mother's death, she embarked on a journey to uncover the hidden truth in her parents' life before their marriage and, and their impact as leftist political revolutionaries. Neda Touloui Semnani is an Emmy Award winning writer and producer who's written for Vice News and the Washington Post. Neda has pieced together the extraordinary life of her parents in her new book. They Said They Wanted Revolution, A Memoir of My Parents. Shahram Ramir spoke with Neda about her memoir and her journey in writing her family's gripping and passionate story before and after the 1979 Iranian Revolution. She began by reading a passage from her book. In this excerpt, Neda describes a scene that takes place a few weeks after her father, was arrested by the Iranian regime in July of 1982.
1: This was when my mother and I were in hiding. We were staying at a house of um, acquaintance, and it was right by Evin Prison, an infamous prison where political prisoners in Iran are held. My mother listened to the prisoners and tried to pick out the voice of any one of her friends who were imprisoned in Evin. They must be there, she thought, among the chorus. They must be. She wouldn't think about where else they might have been held or what else could have been happening to them. As the voices began to fade, she strained to pick out the voice that mattered most. She listened for my father. She sat down on the ground, her back pushed against the wall, and tried to hear him. She talked to him as if he were sitting next to her, like it had been when they were home together. This had become her ritual. Five times each day, as the prisoners were called to prayer, my mother turned her attention to them for a few moments. She didn't know exactly where my father was being held, but she believed he was somewhere on the other side of the barrier, his deep voice mixing with the prayerful. She couldn't have known that he was in a cell beneath the prison complex. His enclosure was likely section 209, a group of cells that had been built above the interrogation chambers during the Shah's reign. These rooms have been described as narrow, with the fingernail sliver of glass high on one wall. This was where, in a prison full of political prisoners, they kept those at the highest level. It was a prison within a prison, built at the foot of the mountain, and it stretched several stories underground. Deep into the night, as the interrogators whipped the soles of prisoners' feet with wire cables. All of the prisoners in section 209 would have heard the screams, the cries of pain punctuated by moments of quiet. In the pauses, my father would have listened as air filled his lungs and followed the sound as he expelled the air from his nostrils. My mother couldn't have known that his voice was too far buried to reach her in the garden nor that while she walked beside the garden's wall, my father was likely in a cell, believing we were far away on our way to California. Or perhaps he thought we had already arrived there in a place where he and she had met and planned a revolution. He didn't know she was still making her choice.
2: What drove you to an extensive inquiry into your parents' lives? Also, it seems like you were contemplating writing a memoir for several years. But when did you
1: actually decide to write the memoir? I had wanted to write a book about my family for conservatively my whole life for lots of reasons. Part of it is because I grew up in the suburbs of Washington DC. And one of the stories that I had to tell over and over again is who's your dad, where's your dad, why isn't your dad here? And my mom would often tell the story of her life as an activist to my friends so it was always like kind of part of our life and it seemed like such an unusual and kind of exciting story it was like a love story and an adventure story and this tragedy and it was my life and and I don't know um growing up as a storyteller you know a good story when you see one type thing but it was about 3 years after my mother passed away she died in 2010 after years of battling ovarian cancer about three years after that, I had decided that I was finally going to do it, that I was finally going to write this story. And actually, it didn't start as a memoir. My idea for this book was essentially to be a full piece of reportage, any kind of nonfiction book. And in fact, I fought really hard to keep myself out of it. But over the years, and it took many, many, many years to write this book. What everybody told me from I went to grad school to write this book, I spent years afterwards writing and rewriting and searching for a publisher and editor. and, And along the way, what became so clear was if I wasn't part of this book, if this wasn't a memoir in kind of a very specific sense, then I would be withholding something from the reader. And as a journalist, I think we try very hard to be as truthful as possible. So it seemed like a strange thing to be essentially be starting this book from a place of omission. Once I became a character, I had to fully embrace that. And then as I was going through and you're Iranian American, you understand the revolution kind of sliced our diaspora to its core. And I didn't want to be telling a story for the entirety of the diaspora. And the way that I can make sure that it was a story that was very specific and in being specific, it somehow become universal was by grounding it in my experience. And once I did that, and it took a long time for me to also own the fact that as I'm in my 40s, but still relatively young. As a relatively young person, I deserve to tell my story. That was in itself a process. So this is a very long answer to say, I've been wanting to do this my whole life, but the memoir part was really over the last eight years or
2: so. It's a tormenting experience, especially if you have your loved ones as the main protagonist of the memoir. Before we delve into the content of the book and talk about the story, because you're a storyteller, let me ask you one more question about the way the book structure. Your book is composed of three parts, and you as the storyteller have decided to use nonlinear narrative where events are not depicted in a chronological order. What can you tell us about your choice of structure?
1: The structure of the book basically means I have faith in the reader to stay with me, The book was in three parts. The first part is basically reported. It's non-linear, but hopefully those are the years before I was born. Those are, it's, it's quite researched. I try to tie in these bigger themes. The geopolitical stuff is really front loaded. And also this is where you were introduced to both the characters and the family mythologies also through the voice, hopefully you're introduced to me as an adult. And then the second part of the book is where my father was arrested and my family had to escape from Iran. And that's also when I was born and I was quite young at the time. So the language again changes and it goes from being kind of a distant, chatty kind of friend hanging out with you to what happens when you Are brought into the world and you're trying to make sense of the world. So the sentences become shorter. It's much more immersive. Everyone's in scene, certain details, colors and stuff pop out from scene to scene, but it's more immersive journalism. And that was hopefully because I am now part of this world. It's not a world that I've had to recreate. And then the third part is essentially diaries, notes, emails, and letters mostly between my mother and I, from after my father was killed until my mother passed away. And so the hope there was, on the one hand, to watch me growing up kind of in real time, grappling with some of the themes that you had been introduced to earlier in the book. We don't often give children the respect of their own experiences. And in this one situation, I was able to preserve a child's own words and her own view of the world and elevate it to the same kind of experience as the adult that told the story earlier.
2: The book is a memoir of your mother, Farahnaz Ibrahimi, known by her friends as Farah, and -hmm. your father, Farah Marzatulouia Semnani. Mm -hmm. It begins in Tehran in 1982 and quickly moves to your parents' backgrounds. Tell Mm -hmm. us about their backgrounds and how they came to the U.S.,
1: my mother grew up from the time she was 10 in California. She was first in San Francisco and then grew up in Monterey. She had followed her mother, who had divorced my grandfather in the mid 1950s and then come to San Francisco State to finish her schooling. Her children came over one by one and my mother was the second of three to come over. Mom grew up in San Francisco and Monterey, the central coast. And she felt very much like a fish out of water. She always said that she felt a little bit like she didn't belong, like she was born. Her adolescence, I think, was kind of depressing for her and quite sad in some ways. And then my dad came over in the early 1960s. He went directly to Rolla, Missouri to study, eventually went to Berkeley for his master's. And that's where they met. They finally, their paths intersected when they were at Berkeley. And they met while they were both in the Iranian Student Association in 1969, Neda, your parents
2: met in a turbulent year in Berkeley. In 1969, Berkeley witnessed People's Parks protests and the Mm -hmm. government's violent response. The Third World Liberation Front, which continued at UC Berkeley, what had earlier started at San Francisco State University, the ongoing movements for civil rights and against the U.S. war on Vietnam, and the activism of the Black Panthers as a powerful organization in the Bay Area. What can you tell us about the sociopolitical context and cultural factors in 1960s that shaped activism of the Iranian students in the U.S. in general, and those like your parents in Berkeley in in particular?
1: I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know this better in some ways than I do. My parents and, and so many people like them were coming over from Iran to the United States and to Europe, obviously in the 19, late 50s, throughout the 60s, obviously into the 70s. And when I was kind of mapping out when people's kind of migration stories were happening and mapping them over what was happening in the States, one of the things that became so clear to me was how shocking it must've been to come into a country that was having a real, we called 2020 and 2015 reckonings, in terms of the civil rights movements. But in the 1960s, the civil rights movement was such a big part of every day, and it was so dramatic. And then you, of course, had the anti-war movement, which was really taking shape. There was the growing leftist movement across the country, and in Berkeley, in so many ways, was kind of a center of certainly political activism in the US it wasn't the only place, but it was a big place. So the Iranian students that came over in the 60s and in the early 70s really were finding their political voice at the same time that their American counterparts were also finding their political voice. They were all working towards what must have felt like similar ends, which is to question authority, to demand justice, to all of those things. It's just that the Iranians were working towards that, both in the U.S., but certainly back in Iran, to, depending on where you were in the movement, either reform or remove the Shah's government.
2: In the 1960s and 70s, Iranian student activists in Europe and the U.S. launched effective campaigns in defense of human rights, saving a number of political prisoners from execution and torture. For most of these student activists, struggle against the Shah was tied to other struggles for peace and justice and against the US imperialism around the globe. And there was extensive collaboration and at times cross-pollination between Iranian student activists and other groups struggling for social justice and peace, such as the SDS, the Black Planters, the Progressive Labor Party, Palestinian activists, and other national liberation movements throughout the world. How did the activism of the uh, Iranian students impact and benefit other groups struggling for social justice and peace?
1: I think one of my first indications of that, people I had been interviewing at the time had constantly told me, It wasn't the Iranian student movements working by themselves in this corner and STS doing something different and Black Panthers doing something different. There was, as you say, a cross-pollination. And when I was doing research in the archives at Stanford, I believe, I came across some flyers with three or four different groups on this flyer for a demonstration. And so I started looking for where are these overlaps? Where do each one of these groups kind of work together? And one of the things that I realized or came to realize after researching for a while was that there was the Cambodian Student Association, I think. you know, It wasn't just the Iranian students working, but from what I've come to understand, the Iranian students were really good at organizing and bringing people together very quickly. What I was told as I was doing my interviews with the people within the movement, one of the things that they said, for example, in Berkeley, if an American group was trying to organize a bunch of people to come together quickly for a protest or a demonstration, the Iranian students were the people that they tended to go to. Also, the movement against the Shah of Iran was something that people could understand that. It was such a clear goal to change this particular government. So I think that really translated as well. I'm always struck by, for example, this isn't in the States, this is in Germany, but one of the biggest protests, one of the most violent protests that was part of the the European kind of global 60s was around a protest set up against the Shah when the Shah was coming to visit. In that protest, a young German man died. That, that was in day-
2: 1967,
1: yes. And that was a really pivotal protest for the global 60s. So there are moments like this that I found throughout kind of the history of what people call, academics call the New Left, which was really striking for me. I'm not a historian, but I, my sense is in most countries, people have protest movements that are fed from inside. And the interesting thing about the Iranian student movement having to really flourish from the outside is that it was able to kind of work in tandem with all these other groups.
2: As the Shah's regime became increasingly more authoritarian, Mm -hmm. and the climate for the activists in the U.S. became more radicalized in the 60s, your parents became radicalized. And at some point, they evolved toward Maoism. Tell us about that. And also, maybe you can briefly talk about a 1976 event, which a group of Iranian students, together with the Revolutionary Student Brigade, chained themselves Mm -hmm. to the Statue of Liberty, and then November 1977 protest in front of the White House when President Carter was welcoming the Shah, who was there on a state visit. Tell us about these events and what they meant to your parents.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also think that they kind of beautifully map out the progress of their activism, their life as activists and as political true believers. Both of them were part of a group that took over the statue of Liberty. And in this case, there had been 18 dissidents, writers, poets, activists who had been arrested in Iran and the Iranian students wanted to bring attention to this. And one of the ways that they decided to do that was to take over the Statue of Liberty, which had never been done before like this. There had been a lot of political activity around the statue, but going up to the crown of the statue, basically taking it over, had never been done this way before. It would afterwards, but at that point, they were the first to do that. It was months of preparation. And then my mom was somebody who spoke with the press and helped negotiate with the police that were involved. That was a very interesting and also formidable protest. And then about a year or so later, my parents were also involved in organizing the 1970 protest against the Shah of Iran's visit. He had been invited by the Carter administration to come, and it was a big deal. And there's famous footage of the two standing outside of the White House, speaking to the invited guests and there was this huge protest happening in the periphery and the police were trying to get control of the situation and use tear gas and the wind gusted the tear gas into the face of Shaw and Carter. There's just pictures of them, their eyes streaming from the tear gas. But this protest, according to my mother, others as well, was a really pivotal protest. From what I understand, the people within Iran who were against the Shah inside Iran saw that there was support from outside of the country as well. And it was one of those kind of fulcrum points.
2: We're skipping some interesting details that you give in the book. Your father was asked by his organization to work as a broadcaster in one of those stations that were established in Iraq in the 70s. Iran and Iraq had severed diplomatic ties and they were in the midst of serious territorial disputes. So this was a way for the Iraqi regime to give a platform to uh, anti-monarchy activists or opposition. Mm -hmm. At the same time, your mother was also sent to Yemen for a month Mm -hmm. or so. It seems like she went there to establish some contacts with the southern Yemen government. The communists had come to power after an eight-year civil war, Some of these things are just puzzling and it shows the international connections to the movements all over the world, like Southern Yemen and Dofar. It's really remarkable.
1: Yeah. The Yemen trip is one of those. I got an email recently saying that somebody had information about the Yemen trip. You brought it up beautifully. I mean, going again to the power of the story or how interesting I found the story to be, not just because it was my family. It was one of those things where you kept pulling threads and you tripped and end up in Baghdad <laughs> somehow, or in yes. Southern Yemen. Or there are stories I had to leave out in Kuwait, Saudi, Canada, Pakistan. It's so interesting.
2: And then your father from Iraq, he moves on to Germany to work in another radio station.
1: Yeah, yeah. I call this a transnational movement and I don't think it's something I've made up, but I think this is a true transnational movement. I think now we think of how connected we are because of technology. But at the time, this organization was working truly across time and space in a very sophisticated level. I find it absolutely fascinating what they were able to do in a relatively short period of time.
2: And some of the moves are really baffling. For instance, your father was working as an electrical engineer in what will become later known as the Silicon Valley, right? Right. And he was earning a decent salary because everybody else was a student or whatever, you know, they're working other type of jobs. And he would essentially hand in his paycheck to his comrades in the organization, (laughs) from what I understand. You send someone with this kind of skills and, you know, other skills you Send them to work in radio. I was asking why, but then I understood your father had the good voice, yeah. (laughs) He had a great
1: voice, and he
2: probably had good oratory skills too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was also an editor of a magazine, he worked with the newspaper. So, the part that was interesting to me, and my dad was also an artist in many ways, you know, one of the big tragedies for both my parents, and I'm sure for so many people who are involved in the movement, I mean, these are incredibly talented, full, complicated people who had to, and this happens in a crisis or in, in a moment where when your politics ends up focusing you, everything else has to take a back seat, sometimes because it has to, and other times because you choose to. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is right. My mom used to always wonder what would have happened had he just worked in Silicon Valley.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Neda, the revolutionary upheaval of 1978-1979 dislodged the monarchy. Your parents, as you mentioned, returned to Iran and continued their work as political activists, mm -hmm. hoping that the country's better days are yet to come. Yeah. And you were born in October 1979. You were indeed... Uh, child of the revolution. The ruling bloc consolidated its power, excluding secular, liberal, and leftist forces very quickly. These are the forces who had participated Mm -hmm. in the revolution, as you mentioned. In June 1981, the new regime unleashed a wave of terror against the opposition, unprecedented in the modern history of Iran. Thousands were arrested, tortured, and executed in the two years following the massive crackdown. At this time, your father had key responsibilities in the Union of Iranian Communists, the organization that both your parents belonged to while they were in the U.S. Can you walk us through what happened to the organization to this period, which eventually led to your father's arrest?
1: I think what's important and that I say over and over again is now when we look back, it seemed inevitable that the Islamists, that the Ayatollah would take over. But in fact, history hadn't been written yet. And there was, as you say, a real optimism and joy about what was happening, that there was a moment that anything could happen or at least that was the feeling. And so, yeah, my parents dove right back into politics. After I was born at this point, they're both in their thirties. They've been doing this for a long time. My mom's dream had been to be a teacher. She'd always wanted to go back to Iran to teach English from before becoming involved with the Confederation, the Iranian student movement. So now was her opportunity to do that. So that kind of came at the same time that there was a faction within the Union of Iranian Communists who wanted to take more militant action against the Islamic Republic. And they were called the Sarbedoran, a Ajangat. Sarbedoran means head in the gallows. From what I understand, it took months of negotiation and meetings. What they thought that they were going to do was essentially have an uprising, a violent uprising, and villagers or the people who are sympathetic to their cause would join up with them. And then there would be another uprising that would check the Islamic Republic. My father was against that plan. I can only guess at his reasons, but from what I understand, he, he just didn't think it was the right move. And there were many people like him and they were voted down. So my father went from having a real leadership voice to being sidelined in his organization. And my mother had really hoped that that would mean he would leave, that he would kind of hang up his hat and they could kind of get on with their lives. Dad didn't do that. From what I understand, he felt very responsible for what was happening within his organization and because he had also recruited a lot of people into the organization. So this uprising basically took place January 25th, 1982. And it was quickly brought down very quickly. It was crushed decisively. Exactly. It was brutal. And the other thing that happened was that there was a complete news blackout after the government crushed this uprising. This took place in Amol, which is north of Tehran. The people who weren't involved in it and who were in Tehran didn't have any idea what was happening, or very few of them did. And slowly over weeks and months intel came out, but the government didn't make a move. And that spring is when my mother found out she was pregnant with my brother. And then in July, a week after my father turned 38 is when the government began to do a sweep of arrests around the AMOL uprising. So my dad was one of many people who were arrested during that sweep, and it was honestly sheer luck that my mother and I weren't caught up in that. And we escaped about a month later after my dad's arrest.
2: And in August 1982, a few weeks after your father's arrest, your family Mm -hmm. had to be smuggled out of the country into Turkey, a treacherous journey to say the least. and The scenes in this part of your book are so vivid, disturbing and inspiring at the same time. A manifestation of human resilience. Tell us about this journey. Who was with you on this trip? I'm talking about your family members and who were the smugglers? Perhaps you can read an excerpt from your book.
1: When we escaped Iran, it was my mother and myself, my uncle and his wife and their five-month-old daughter, And then my young aunt, who was 18 at the time, and I should say my mother was close to eight months pregnant at this point when we left, we had thought we were going to be leaving in a car and driving some hours into Turkey, into safety. But what ended up happening is we were forced mostly on foot and on horseback for days trying to get over the border of Iran into safety in Turkey. And this ended up being a harrowing journey over mountains. And I was a little over two and a half, not yet three. And because my mother was so pregnant, I was for part of the night on a horse by myself. And the one thing I had during this journey was my blue windbreaker, which was like my safety blanket. I would hold it and suck my thumb. And that's what I did to kind of take care of myself. Since I remember very little of the journey, this is my only real memory Of our passage. So it begins. I remember nearly nothing from the journey, just shadows and impressions. I do remember wanting my mother that night. I remember that when she told me I couldn't be with her, I was confused and wondered if I were in trouble. I didn't understand that there wasn't enough room for me on her horse. I didn't understand that she was too big, the horse too small, and the trail too dangerous. Now I wonder if the last thing my mother would have wanted just then was a child pressed up against her. To be strong for me, she needed space from me. I was given my own horse and my own mustachioed smuggler. He scared me, so Emma and my uncle let me ride with them at various points in the night, but I don't remember that at all. I held on tightly to my blue satin jacket. The night went on. Emma's horse wandered from the rest of ours. Don't be scared, the smuggler riding with my aunt told her. You're like a sister to me. I'll take care of you. It grew later still. The horse swayed beneath me. I fell asleep against the smuggler. In my sleep, my fingers loosened their grip on my windbreaker. I woke up when it fell from my hand, floating down the mountainside. I begged the smugglers, my mother, aunts, and uncle to stop the horses and go back and find it. My smuggler went back and tried, but he didn't see it. I know where it is, I told him. I can find it. But it was dark and late. We had to keep moving. The moment they stopped looking for my jacket, I filled up with a fear so profound, the rest of me shrank to nothing. The world is unfair, and I am washed away. I remember that feeling clearly.
2: Sadly, as incredible as the story of your family's escape from Iran may appear to be, it's real and universal. It's a story that must resonate with your readers at a time when millions of people are risking their lives by taking perilous journeys to escape from their homelands because of war, poverty, repression, violence, and climate catastrophe.
1: Yeah, I think one of the great privileges as a journalist that I get to do is cover The migrations that are happening right now of refugees and immigrants who are, whether it's Ukraine or Afghanistan, Latin and Central America, it's been my great privilege to have been covering these stories in various parts for years now. And one of the things that I hope that this book has done by telling truly one person's story, not just my experience which I reported and spent a lot of time trying to reconstruct of the actual passage, but of what it means to grow up in the aftermath in the shadow of leaving and of having to rebuild in a new place. I hope that it's the start of really giving refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants space to tell their own stories in their own voice and really elevating those stories.
2: Shortly after you and your mother entered the United States, your brother Nima was born. A few months after his birth, your father and two dozen other prisoners were put on trial in January 1983 in Iran. The charges against your father and the other defendants included working for the CIA and against the state. And the prosecution was asking for the death penalty We should add that the proceedings were not in a courthouse, but in the auditorium of Devin Prison. Can you
1: describe to us
2: what this trial was like?
1: Actually, if anybody is interested, you can find it online. It's actually been uploaded to YouTube. I mean, if you can just imagine for a moment being tried in the prison where you're also being held and interrogated. And these prisoners were tried in a group, so there wasn't a defense It was the judge and the prosecutor sitting next to each other on one side of a table. And then the accused kind of lined up almost like it was a stage at a school. And you had this big painting of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And it kind of stands out to me because the proportions were a little bit off, but it definitely seemed it's almost like an idol was painted on the wall. And then on the ground in front of them, there were these posters with slogans that were against the prisoners and there were all these people who were from the town where this violent uprising had taken place the year before as far as I understand my father wasn't directly involved in planning or implementing this violent uprising against the Islamic Republic but he had been involved with the organization that had planned it so it had this sense of inevitability watching the trial back now the people are being you know asked leading questions and there comes a point in my father's testimony you hear the kind of tone of the questioning change you hear his voice crack and that's when you kind of sense that things are not going to be going in his favor but When the trial was happening, it was broadcast in Tehran and across the country, in fact. So my mother in California, she would take me to daycare in the morning and then go back home and just wait by the phone for somebody to call and tell her what had happened in the trial that day. My father's testimony was relatively short. And before the trial itself was only two weeks long. And they were all sentenced to death at the end of that. But my father was able to write a letter sort of a last will and testament the day before he was executed.
2: Your father was emphatically opposed to raging armed struggle against the regime. Nonetheless, the regime held him responsible for the actions of his organization and handed him the death sentence. But up until the day of your father's execution on the 25th day of January, 1983, your mother was still hopeful that your father would not be executed. Tell us about what happened that night Before the execution, and how did your mother react to the heart wrenching news of the killing of her loved one and her friends?
1: Yeah, I mean, what you said about still having hope, I think, is so critical. I mean, we see that now with when you hear stories of people whose loved ones are facing the death penalty anywhere. There's this hope that something will happen, either at the last minute or in Iran, that there you can find somebody corrupt enough. To take a bribe and get my father out of jail, all the things. Maybe somebody will say the right thing, being used as an example, and they'll just be held in prison forever or something. You know, there's always this hope. And so my mother kind of held on to this. She would go back and forth between utter despair and hope. And then she said that the night before my father died, She had a dream and in that dream, she saw him and she saw a very dear friend of theirs. And she kept asking him in the dream, I think that the danger is over. Don't you think that the danger is over? And he never responded. And then she saw standing behind him, one of the organizers of the uprising. And my mother tells the story really beautifully. I say it in the book in almost verbatim, but it was... As soon as she saw this other person, her heart fell and she just knew that they were going to be killed. But then she woke up and at that time she had an infant. My brother um, was about three and a half months old at that point. And she woke up and her first thought was, oh, well, that was just a dream. And and so it, it wasn't real. It was just a dream. So she started her day, which was feeding my brother, making sure that he was taken care of. We'd been living in California, but she went to DC for the last few days of the trial to be with her sister and brother-in-law and they had gone to work or she said goodbye to them and her sister had gone to work and then the phone rang and then my uncle didn't say anything. He left and her sister came back in. And she said that when she saw her sister's face, she knew something was wrong and she kept saying, What happened? Who died? It was almost like she knew what was happening, but couldn't quite absorb it in that moment. And my aunt says that she just collapsed and started, you know, held her own hands and started walking back and forth and just saying over and over again, What a shame. Oh, what a shame. Mm. And my mother just remembers this crash of grief, this unbelievable crash of grief, because it wasn't just that my father died. It was that so many of their friends had died. It was the loss of her country. It was the feeling of responsibility for people who survived. And I think all of those, on top of the fact that my father was the great love of her life, crashed on her in that moment like a wave. And we are all, humans are so resilient. But my mother is always kind of a hero for me in her resilience.
0: That is award-winning journalist and author Neda Tului speaking with Shahram Agamir about her new book, They Said They Wanted Revolution, A Memoir of My Parents. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: dan ja Years after your father's execution, when you were older, did your mother open her heart to you and share her feelings and her thoughts with you? Did you feel that even in the last season of her life, your mother was grieving the loss of her soulmate?
1: Yeah, I think in the sense that, you know, my mother was married, she found a partner, which is a beautiful thing to find love again and a partner again. But I think my father died in such a tragic way and they were so close. They were such good friends, especially towards the end of his life. So my mother absolutely, I think, grieved him until the end. She missed him terribly. And there was always a question of what would have happened. There are few times in your life where there's a delineation that is so pronounced as a escape, as a exile. Those are pretty pronounced lines in the sand of before and after. So I think there was always a question in her mind of what would have happened had they left earlier? What would their life have looked like? And there are so many different ways that that story could have ended. Yeah, of course, she loved my father till the last days of her life.
2: Sadly, you lost your mother in 2010. Mm -hmm. After a six year battle with cancer, her loss was immensely painful for you. Both of you had very deep love for each other, and it was such an affectionate relationship. You beautifully described that in the book. Throughout your childhood, you were grieving the loss of your father. You write about talking to your father before you went to bed as a child, as a teenager, and through most of your childhood into the early days of your mother's sickness. In this very honest memoir that... You have included letters between you and your mother, as well as some of your own writings at different junctures in your life. Can you read the piece entitled My Dad, written when you were eight years old?
1: My dad died when I was three. I am very sad my dad died. He lived a good life. He was a good man. He fought for freedom in Iran. He was 38 years old when he died. He may not be with me, but I have his memory in my heart and I still love him as much as ever. When I look at his pictures, memories come back to me. Standing by the beach brought back memories of my mom and dad running across the shore with me. Although I know those days are gone, I still love him and will always remember him.
2: Hmm. And on the day that you graduated from high school, you wrote, I felt my father was with me. I felt him smiling and shaking his head like he couldn't believe how much I had grown and how far I had come. It would be difficult for the readers to miss this profound and lingering grief that tailed you for decades. It's heartbreaking.
1: I think we sometimes don't give children or young people enough credit for both what they're processing and how they are processing it which is in pretty sophisticated ways, actually, and not so different from the adults around them. So I think because the children don't often get to tell their own stories, it felt really important to give the younger version of myself space to show how it was for her.
2: After your mother became ill, there was less talking to your father and uh, more directing your sadness, rage, and anger towards him for having left you and the family. It seems like you were experiencing these emotions even before you met Joy for the first time. Joy had been dating your father before he met your mother. Tell us Mm -hmm. about that conversation and how did it affect you emotionally?
1: I think part of the reason why I was angry with my father had very little to do, I mean, obviously I was lashing out because my mother was sick and we knew it was terminal. But one of the other things was, and I think this is true for so many of us, you think you've reached your threshold of tragedy and you can't have tragedy anymore. That's it. We're done. And when mom got sick and specifically when it was clear that she wasn't recover, it just felt unfair, especially when you're in your 20s and that feels like a thing you can be really angry about. So my dad got the brunt of that years later as i was reporting the book people kept saying you should reach out to joy your your dad's girlfriend before your mom and they kept telling me over and over again as if she would have some sort of insight and i wasn't quite sure what that was and eventually after you know a really long time of trying to get an essence of my father he felt sort of elusive you know, as a character, I realized that I really did need to talk to her because she had insight into him that hadn't been filtered through telling of these stories to me. So I looked for years and Eventually, my uncle actually somehow found her. And then the day I called her and left her a message, I found out much later that she had just plugged her phone back into, so it was a landline, and she it had been unplugged for months. And for some reason, she had just plugged it back into the wall. And I think I had called and left a message the next day. So there was something about it that felt sort of kismet when we met. And we sat down, we had an afternoon together and it just felt like all of a sudden I was able to ask her questions and she was able to tell me stories about my dad that others hadn't for no other reason than it was such a relationship, being in a relationship with someone. And one of the things that she was able to tell me or share with me is my dad had told her even when they were together, which overlapped a little bit with my mother, but which was some years before my dad was as political. He had told her that they could never get married because he was planning to go back to Iran and he was going to be a revolutionary, which meant that he would be living underground and he wouldn't be able to commit to her in that way that she wanted. There was something about when she told me that story, it felt like a a real punch in the gut because I had been asking all these years, why wouldn't he have with his family? Why or left earlier? Why wouldn't he have put his family first? I asked her in that moment, if he knew even then, why did he have a family? And there was something about that question that really kind of shaped the rest of my reporting and the rest of my excavation about the book.
2: But it seems like at the end of this journey and this memoir, and in your quest for answers to questions such as what you just said, why did my father decide to start a family knowing that what he knew, you dismantled, you say you dismantled your child's view of your parents and reconstructed them in context. Can you read that passage where you describe this transformation? I have learned these are stories that shape us.
1: I have learned there are stories that shape us, others that change us, and still others that change with us. The stories I have told here have had many iterations. Over the course of years of reporting and composing, I've jettisoned earlier versions that I had previously accepted as true. I pushed myself to exhume the past. I had to dismantle my child's view of her parents, their revolution, their love story, their heartbreak, and the aftermath we all had to contend with. I picked apart these people who were no less than my heroes, and I began to rebuild them in context. They emerged as flawed, beautiful, tragic, and fallible. I have dissolved under the weight of their story and the responsibility around its telling. I've broken myself apart into pieces and pulled myself back together.
2: The epilogue of your book was written two weeks after the January 6th, 2021 storming of the Capitol building. This is when you were pregnant with your son, Rumi. Here, too, you're having a very honest monologue with him. You write, You might ask me one day if you knew it was a pandemic and you suspect a dark and violent future, then why did you guys decide to have a family? Here you're drawing a parallel between your father's decision to have children and that of yours. Mm. And you come to this beautiful conclusion. You say I love my father and my father and I'm proud of him.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things that I realized, it's something that I struggle with. I love my son. I love being a mother and there's so much joy that comes with it. True delight. I was pregnant, a couple people said was what an optimistic thing to do. And we were at the height of the pandemic when I found out I was pregnant and I was covering the protests of 2020. So I was in the thick of what was happening in so many different ways. And when I thought about it months later, there were so many parallels between what my parents had gone through and what I was going through at that moment I really had to think what I would say to Rumi, what I would say to my son when he asked me, which would be a very fair question. We are in the middle of a climate crisis. We are in the middle of huge political unrest. Um, Within a year of him being born, we had the Taliban take over Afghanistan, Russia invade Ukraine. We have the overturning of Roe, V Wade in the States. There's there's a targeting of transgendered people in America. The list goes on and on and on and on. And he would be well within his rights to turn to me and be like, What were you thinking? I think the best thing I can do is to look at him and say, having you and growing our family was an act of love. It is an act of optimism, not just for him, but for me and also a commitment to trying to make my world a better place. I think your piece
2: written in 2019, in which you Mm -hmm. tell us why you were writing this memoir, is passionate, moving, and undoubtedly captures the essence of this book. As the conclusion to our conversation, may I ask you to read this passage?
1: Whoever you are, whoever you are, whoever you may be, may be you, you, It doesn't matter who you are. I want you, whoever you are, to hear this. Whoever you are, I want you because I need to, to tell you. I need to tell you a story, to write you a story. I will find you and read you this story. If you can't hear and don't read, I want to show this story to you, this story. But I do want you, I want you to try to read, to see, to listen to this story about me. It is about me, a little bit. It is a little bit about me, but it isn't only. It is a story about a lot, about a lot of people, people I know and people I never will. It is a story, many stories really, about place and places and some of the people who moved between those, who moved across those lines, who crossed those lines. It is a story, a story about people who move between places and through time. It is about the past, about journeys I stitched together, scrap by scrap, until the present came through. I wove them into a story, a story I made from wisps gathered from here and there, wisps threaded through an eye, pierced into a scene, leading from then into later. It might explain how now is. It might explain today some. Mm -hmm. That is how the story was built. But it is a tale about, about how things began. I want to tell you what was built and how it was broken. I want to tell you about what we lost, about what I lost, about those lost, I want to tell you all the things lost to me and to you, about all the loss, loss that built up like scum on a window and dust on a ledge. I want to tell you about all the loss swept together, piled loss on top of loss until it became something, something scattered, scattered like seeds, something like life, something like lives, something like diaspora. I will tell you about those who dispersed, about the dispersed, about those who came apart together and those who then came together, about the ones who lived, who lived through losing, who lived throughout the loosening, who wound themselves tight, who tightened and bruised, who became a new thing. I will tell you some things about them. I want to tell you all that and to tell you a story about how they made me. How I didn't understand, how I searched through, through found lost things until I understood, until I understood something about loss, about things, about the lost things left behind. Then, and I don't know how to do this, but then I want to show you how it went then, how we lived through, how we did that. I want to show you that loss was only some of the story, only part of the story, just a seed of the story but not the whole of it, not the whole of our story, our story. I want to tell you this story, but it is not my story. It is, it is my story, but not only, it is ours. And maybe, maybe, and maybe it is yours too.
0: Nedotu Luis Emnani is an Emmy Award-winning writer and producer who has written for Vice News and The Washington Post. She spoke with Shahram Ogamir. Neda has pieced together the extraordinary life of her parents. In her new book, They Said They Wanted Revolution, a memoir of my parents. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com.